Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. From Tom Sochi Palace and my tiny study, it's F1 Nation with TC and me. This week, Toto Walk stops by to discuss the new F1 boss. We hear from Andrew Shovlin about those penalties. Plus, we talk mind games in progress at Renault. And now, it's montage time. Five lights out in Russia, and we are racing at the Sochi Autodrome. Carlos Sainz has ripped a wheel off. Oh, there's a spin into the wall there for Lance Stroll, who's out of the race. And once again, we will need a safety car on the opening lap of the Grand Prix. Lewis, we have a 10-second time penalty for those start infringements. Where is that in the rule book? Daniel Ricciardo gets past Esteban Ocon. It's win number nine in Formula One for Valtteri Bottas. Yes, mate! Get in there! It was must-win today. It has been won. Who'd have thought a practice start could cause so much controversy? And it was just one of the many talking points to come out of the Russian Grand Prix weekend. So let's delve into it on The Nation with me, Tom Clarkson. And me, Alex Jakes. Now, AJ, what were you thinking when you saw Lewis doing what turned out to be his second practice start on the side of the track? Were you thinking, that's fine? I was thinking I've got to do a grid talk, which is in place of a grid walk in a few moments time. And I was like, oh, don't get investigated for that. I've got all my facts and stats laid out. You're going to ruin this, Lewis. What did you do? In all honesty, I did not believe he was going to be penalized for where he was on the circuit because, as Mercedes argued, it's a little bit of an ambiguous rule, isn't it? And Lewis was very quick to state after the race that it's no different to Interlagos. If you can think of where they do their practice starts there, the the exit of the pit lane curls downhill next to the center S's, and then you're out on that fast run to turn four. So Lewis thought it was just another Interlagos. Yeah, he was wrong, wasn't he? What I found fascinating about it is he didn't know the precise rule and was relying on the team to give him that update. Well, this year, you've got a good points lead and you've got a dominant car. But imagine he was unaware and the team doesn't give him that information at, say, a Interlagos 2008 at a title battle in Abu Dhabi in 2014. It shows you why you can always rely on your team and what a team he has at his disposal. But nothing beats knowing every single page of that rule book, albeit in one of the strangest circumstances we've seen in recent years. AJ, I think you're being quite demanding. How many of the drivers on this current grid would know that ruling? I don't think many of them would. I actually asked Max Verstappen after the race. I said, did you know? He said, well, the team tell me where to do my practice starts. Just tell everyone at home, the reason that the rule exists as well is to stop someone doing it, say, at like turn four when someone else is on a reconnaissance lap. But very unusual to get a Grand Prix effectively decided before they'd even formed up on the grid. It also was an insight into Lewis's thinking, I think, because there were a lot of marbles at the exit of the pit lane where everyone had been doing lots of practice starts. And he wanted to try and replicate 
the conditions that he was going to find on the grid. So he wanted to get away from those marbles and find somewhere else to do it, which is, on the one hand, is admirable, him trying to find uh, a, a more consistent surface in which to do that practice start. But wow, if, if AJ was running Mercedes, he'd be saying, you know, why don't you know the rule book? <laughs> I'd be slapping down the PDF in his <laughs> inbox tomorrow morning and saying, thanks yeah. for all the wins and the exceptional driving over the last couple of years. Have a read up of this. No, yeah. I would not. I would not be going near. <laughs> and they're not his finest race of the season after that, having to look after those hard tyres. But the reaction after the Grand Prix, he seemed genuinely irritated didn't he for the first time this season he believes those penalties were just plainly unfair and the quote that they're trying to stop me is about as incendiary as we've heard from Hamilton in a long time yep it is we see this a lot from Lewis and in the press conferences after the race if he's not in the middle seat he's always a little bit monosyllabic not a not an easy interview, not a generous interview. He, there's only one place that exists for him. What I think that speaks to is the mental side of things, the mindset you need to keep coming back year after year after year. Lewis knows that the odds are stacked in his favor for this seventh world championship, and he has taken the Russian Grand Prix result terribly. And I think it's an insight to an elite sportsman that to keep the hunger going, to go for title number seven, you need to be irritated like that. There are plenty who would say, well, why can't, you know, just, just come back at the Nürburgring. You're fantastic at the Nürburgring. You've got an unbelievable record there. You've got an unbelievable car. The fact he's so upset with that gives us a little window into why he's won so many Grand Prix. Yeah. Really good point. And, and he finished third. He didn't finish last. He didn't finish 10th. Yes. He finished third. Yeah, he's just, uh, he's made to win that lad. And the moment he stopped, it's an insight too, I think, about his long-term future. Because there's been a few stories here in Sochi this weekend about, is he about to sign a new three-year deal? But I'm sure, even if, if that is actually going to happen, that there will be break clauses at the end of each year. Because the moment he stops winning, I don't see Lewis Hamilton hanging around. He's got too much else he wants to do in his life. If Mercedes come up with a bad car for 2022, hard to believe that they will. But if they do, he's not going to hang around a long time to drive it. One final thing on Lewis, the penalty points. A lot of people talking that he was two away from a race ban. That was the case on the Sunday for a, for a couple of hours. And then late Sunday night, that was changed and those penalty points were rescinded. So he's gone from the edge of a race ban back to being close, but not completely in danger. Well, as you're about to hear, the team didn't tell him exactly where to do it. They just said he could go a little bit further down the pit lane. Some places there's a box that they paint on the floor and you've got to do it in the box. And other places it's kind of a general area. And often if there's a lot of rubber that's not going to be representative of the grid, the drivers um, and also the engineers will want to find a bit that's closer in terms of the grip to expect on the grip. And all it was was Lewis asked if he could go a bit further. Um, we hadn't realised quite how far he was he was going to go, but it's really just to trying to find a bit of tarmac that's more more like the one that you're going to get when you do the proper race start. We didn't see the first one um, when we saw the second one. We thought they're not going to like that. We didn't think it was dangerous and given that the events notes said that it was on the right-hand side after the pit exit, we thought it might have been ambiguous enough that we would have uh, 
I mean, when we saw the calf position, it wasn't a complete surprise that, that they didn't like it. And, you know, no doubt there may have been teams who'd, who'd flagged it as much as whether, you know, whether the FIA or the stewards spotted it themselves, I don't know. Andrew Shovlin, Trackside Engineering Director there, saying he was worried when they saw the second practice start. But I don't think Mercedes would have been expecting two five-second penalties. It took Hamilton out of contention. But fear not, Tom, their unbeaten run in Russia, it goes on. Back when they were competing just as Benz around St. Petersburg, that winning run of over 100 years continues, thanks to Valtteri Bottas. And we've already talked a little bit about mindset. Valtteri played us the greatest hits. I think, again, it's a nice moment to thank my critics, to whom it may concern you. Playing a classic Valtteri ballad for us, TC, but what do you think that says about the journey he's been on this year? Only a second Grand Prix win of the year, and let's be honest, everyone was doubting that he can take the championship fight to Lewis. He clearly has not given up. There's a lot of aggression there being let out when he went across the line. When you consider that this was a very easy victory for Valtteri, I think for him to be just quite so pumped by it is an indication of the frustration that he's been feeling because it's his first win since the season opener in Austria, isn't it? And then in uh, in qualifying in, what is it, three of the last four sessions, he's been six hundredths of a second or less shy of Lewis Hamilton. So I think there is an incredible amount of frustration. And this was just the release valve. It wasn't an emphatic victory by any means, but it was a victory. And he's just so relieved to get it. That's what it tells me. After a difficult qualifying session as well, I think that frustration crept in at the 70th anniversary Grand Prix, where he wasn't able to convert that pole position. And since then, Bottas knows that He's going up against one of the best ever in Formula One history, and he's getting close. And that must be even more frustrating. If you just get blown away every weekend and you just go, well, he's better than me. But when it's fine margins, then I imagine it's even more irritating. Remember, he got his first win here in 2017. And then 2018, do you remember, he had to give up the win team orders. So there's always that sort of tinge in the background, isn't there? So this place has been brilliant to him. It's been very frustrating to him. And I think this has swung the the pendulum back into the, it's a great racetrack for him again. Looks like the Netflix curse, Netflix Drive to Survive, season three, following Mercedes. Looks like it's just a Lewis Hamilton curse at this (laughs) point. I mean, gosh, you couldn't make it up, could you? Just the whole qualifying drama of missing, almost missing Q3. By, what was it, one second he had to get across that line. I mean, extraordinary stuff. You couldn't make it up. And I always sometimes think when you hear Lewis's team radio, it's like he's almost writing a script for Netflix, (laughs) isn't he? We expected the Russian Grand Prix to be a tale of records equaled. And we still got that from Kimi Raikkonen. 322 Grand Prix starts. That is a lot of motor racing. He drew level with Rubens Barrichello. Lewis Hamilton matching Michael will have to wait for another day. So instead of the records, we got tales of the unexpected. We've already covered Lewis, but also Renault. An incredible situation. Have you ever seen an attempt to swap drivers round by a team go that badly wrong? I think it shows 
we're talking about frustration with Bottas. I think there was a lot of frustration with Dan Ricciardo as well, because I think he'd been wanting to get past Ocon, who'd been holding him up for the whole race, let's not forget, for, I think, many laps. And then eventually Ocon does get off the racing line, but he leaves it very late and asks his teammate to break so late that he's locking up and, of course, missing the exit at turn two. And I don't think there's much love lost between Esteban and Daniel. And not that there's any issue there at all. I think Daniel is so competitive. And I think a situation like that where he's being held up by, what is it, maybe just two or three tenths a lap is so frustrating to him. Uh, do have a five-second penalty for the turn two incident. Okay. I'll drive faster. Cheers, buddy. Yeah, that's my bad. I'll make up for it. The contrast. Of- this is what I'm driving at. Yes. The contrast. And then he comes on the radio and says, my bad. Contrast that with what we saw on the radio messages from Lewis Hamilton saying how furious he was and how unfair everything was. And I just love Daniel Ricciardo. It just, it's great PR for the man, isn't it? When you hear the little beep come up and you're waiting for the radio message and I was like, here we go. Bleep, 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 bleep. What's he doing? What a clown. What are you doing? Why didn't you do this earlier in the race? And I thought, what an incredible attitude. But then you think a little bit little bit longer about it and you think he doesn't want to give Esteban a glimmer that he was irritated by that first part of the race. What might have been said behind closed doors, he might have been pointing to some lap times and going, do you want to score big points in Formula One? Because if you think I'm demanding, you better wait until next, next year when Mr. Alonso is coming to town. He's already in the building. He's yeah. already been to the factory. AJ, those mind games were happening on Saturday as well in Q2 because Daniel, for those who don't remember, was fastest of everybody in that chaotic Q2 session. But he did it on his first set of tyres. He had another set, could have gone again, but he said, no, lads, I'm all right. I can't go any faster than I've just done. And that is just a wonderful thing to be able to tell your team first up. And it reminds me of, do you remember Senna and Pross back in the day when one of them thought they couldn't go any faster? They rush back into the truck, get changed into their jeans and a t-shirt, appear mid-qualifying, say, look, lads, off you go. Go on, Ayrton, try and beat me. And um, there was a little (laughs) bit of that going on as well, I thought, between Daniel and Esteban then. Very interesting narrative we've got going through all the Grand Prix weekends. Ricardo, Vettel, Perez, all leaving their teams at the end of the year, all in completely different headspaces. It appears that Vettel is just absolutely desperate to get rid of that car, wants a new challenge. Perez is irritated that he's been turfed out of the team. And Daniel Ricardo seems as mentally secure and as happy with his driving as he has done at any stage of his Formula One career. Real contrast going on there. He seems, I think, happier at Renault this year than he was last year. Without think, doubt. Yeah, that is a team on the move at the moment because uh, since Spa, they have been consistent throughout each of the Grand Prix weekends. Earlier on this year, often very quick on a Friday and then suddenly the performance on a Saturday and a Sunday would fluctuate. Think back to the Spanish Grand Prix, but since Spa, they have been fast and they've been consistent. They came here with an upgrade that was worth a little bit more and they're now really understanding that car and I think they're going to be strong for the rest of the year. And I'm going to say it, AJ, but I think they are my bet for P3 in the World Championship. Ooh, interesting. Am I right, AJ? Or am I wrong? I'm going to go via Lando Norris for my answer here. I think McLaren have taken everything they can out of the season so far. Russia was a very odd race 
by their high standards this year. I think McLaren are converting more opportunities. Renault are struggling to convert practice pace into peak grid performance. They were behind a racing point on the grid. You've had uh, three of the last six races, TC. Daniel Ricciardo has been in the top three on a Friday, and he hasn't once been able to convert that into a top three on a Formula One grid this year. I think there's an element, if there's any element of frustration for Daniel Ricciardo's season so far, it's that, that they're not able to execute when it really matters under the pressure of Saturday. And that's always giving them work to do on Sunday. I think McLaren have been better at that. I think that's why they've put two drivers on the podium so far this year. And yet, at peak performance, I think that racing point is probably the best all-round package. So there's yes. there's a nice hedge for you. Uh, I would go for McLaren, and that guarantees that with you saying Renault and me saying McLaren, it's going to be racing point. It does, it does. And when they turn up at the Nurburgring with both cars having their aero update, and Sergio <laughs> Perez is going to get that top three start that he's always wanted and never had, and win. We're both <laughs> we're both going to be eating that humble pie. Back to humble pie. The humble pie of F1 Nation. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you've brought up McLaren again, AJ, because that very bizarre accident that Carlos Sainz had on the opening lap at turn three. Do you remember he was going between, trying to get between the bollards, misjudged it and hit the barrier on the left-hand side. He succeeded himself there because that accident peaked at 59G. Oh. seemed a fairly innocuous shunt at the time, I felt, but 59G, and that's even higher than that massive-looking shunt that he had back in 2015 when he was at Toro Rosso, which was 46G at the end of the straight at turn 13. Carlos has hit a few walls around here, it has to be said. <laughs> wow, over 50G after misjudging it. You know, Carlos was the first driver through the polystyrene bollards on Friday. And we were wondering, oh, is it tighter there? And he just seemed to breeze through. And would you believe it? His race undone by the very same bollards. I just prefer to have a gravel trap there, I have to say. They've had a lot of years to put that right. It's a problem every single year. The drivers are now saying there's a design problem with the track. Yeah, the design problem is there's no gravel trap at turn number two. Well, one of the biggest stories to come out of the Russian Grand Prix weekend came our way during practice when it was confirmed that Stefano Domenicali, former team boss at Ferrari, current CEO at Lamborghini, at the start of 2021 will be taking over as the chief executive officer for Formula One, replacing Chase Carey. This was met by universal praise in the paddock, it has to be said. Well, it's usually a good move when the boss is incoming and you say nice things. But for many in the paddock, the last couple of years, many have expected Toto Wolf to be in the frame for that job. So what better time for TC to catch up with Toto Wolf with the new boss incoming? Toto, it's lovely to have you on the show. Look, first up, big news at the minute. I'd love to get your reaction to the news that Stefano Domenicali is the new president and CEO of Formula One. Uh, great move from Liberty. I think Stefano is a foremost a man with a great personality, integrity, and knowledge of the sport. He's been a sporting director, a team principal, has gone through difficult times and through successful times has been involved in the Audi Formula One project for a while and at the end was the guy that led Lamborghini to 
tremendous performances, um, financial performances, and also, honestly, the cars are great. And uh, I think he's a very, very good choice for the role. How well do you know him? How much contact have you had with him since he left Formula One back in 2014? A lot of contact um, because I just came in um, when he shortly thereafter went. Um, our first encounter, proper encounter, was in Monaco where he protested us for a tire gate. So, <laughs> as you mean to go on. <laughs> yeah, uh, so uh, I'm still laughing with him about that. Not sure he's my friend, actually. His first. His first action was protesting us. No, since then we had a very good relationship, and um, and because of simply because of his personality, you just have to get on with him. And what kind of Formula One is Stefano going to be taking over? I think because he knows the sport inside out. I think sport comes first, and uh, he's going to stay away from in my opinion, artificial things. He's a purist, but equally understands that you need to keep your spectators and your audiences interested. So I think that balance is really complicated to, to have right. And um, I think, I think he, will, he will get that right. And now that we've got the new technical and financial regulations in place, what's top of Stefano's job list when he starts in January? I think the, the, the job list is, is tremendous. He had Chase fight his way through to get the Concorde done. And, um, and this, this is something we need to acknowledge. Um, I believe at times very frustrating to him to deal with the FIA and 10 opportunistic teams. But uh, it's good that it's done and they leave Stefano in a good position to re really look after the sport. Um, how it can be optimized, raise more sponsorship, do great broadcasting deals, bring us to exciting places and exciting racetracks, win a new generation um, as new fans over all these channels that exist today. Did you ever put your hat in the ring for the job? No, I didn't. Um, I think everybody knows that there were some initial discussions with Greg and, um, and uh, it never... It never went anywhere. I think we, we get on great. We get on well. I respect Greg Maffei a lot for what he has achieved. And um, but I love where I am, and I found found out that I love the stopwatch um, so much, the competition and the racing, that where I am today, co-owner of the team with Mercedes, I have to pinch myself every single day. And at the end, it wouldn't have gone anywhere anyway because um, Ferrari wouldn't have accepted that. So that's Do you really awesome. believe that? No, I know that. But that's okay. You know, they have this right. And if you have that right, it's very easy to, you know, I respect it. Absolutely. Probably, I've prob I would have probably done, um, probably had the same thoughts. At the end, maybe different decision because you've got to have the best guy to, to run the sport, but I think they have the best guy today. Stefano is, is just the real deal. So Toto, it seems you and Lewis are next on the news agenda. So how are talks about both of your futures going? When are we going to hear? I think we are so similar in the way in, in how our characters work that we just didn't have the right time to sit down properly. We have 
triple headers one after the other. We are very much concentrated on winning both championships. This is all we do today. And uh, at a certain stage, time is going to run out. And we just need to find the time. So, yeah. Um, and as for my personal situation, um, it's not only about extending an employment contract. I'm a co-shareholder and co-owner with Daimler. It's about finding out how we want to shape this team going forward. What are Mercedes' expectations in me? What are my expectations in Mercedes? And Ola and I, Ola Kalenius and I are completely aligned. It just needs to be put, put down on a paper. And are you clear in your mind what you want to do yourself? Never. I'm never clear in my mind. <laughs> uh, I just know that I love the people. I really enjoy working with the Diamond Board led by Ola Kalenius. And I love the stopwatch. And that's pretty much, you know, keeping me, keeping me in the team. Uh, whatever that could mean for the future. But um, I think I have responsibility for everybody at Mercedes. And like with any senior position in the past, we are looking at the future. We don't want to lose any cap senior capability, but equally not be a bottleneck for talent. We've done that in the past with Paddy and Mark Ellis and a few others. And um, that's why I wouldn't take myself out of um, the same principle or system. How has your attitude to Formula One changed during the time that you've been involved? My attitude, you know, when you're so close to the sport, you sometimes, it becomes your normality. And you need to be able to stand back, look at it and say, is it great or not? And I think we are a great sport. What we do is fantastic and is making people passionate. And uh, we have a billion uh, or so in audiences, uh, in normal times when there is not a, a terrible virus, we have packed grandstands and I regularly s stand out and look at it and, and decide for myself, do I enjoy it or not? And the conclusion? And sometimes in meetings with less enjoyable meetings, uh, with less enjoyable people, I enjoy it less. <laughs> enjoy it more or less. <laughs> more less. <laughs> and, um, and when I'm, when I'm, with my gang, my tribe, I, I love it very much. Final question. Lewis can equal Michael's record. Do you feel if he were to do that, it's the end of an era? No, Michael is going to shine above all of us and Formula One forever. Put his print, do you say that, over 10-year spell, the most complete racing driver the sport has ever had and um, and I think that's the emotional side as a rational and emotional side but from a pure rational side record are there to be broken and even if a record seems to be unbreakable somebody else is going to come one day and break it may take a long time next year where he has the chance to beat it he's much too early to speak about it will be 17 years and I think this is an okay time for a record to be broken. And if we are looking ahead in 2037, there will be another kid that's in nursery today or doing the first steps in a Bambino go-kart. going to be out there and challenge Michael and Lewis's record. Jack Wolf. I hope not. Too dangerous. <laughs> I hope he's into tennis or, or football 
or anything that I enjoy watching rather than uh, being in nervous panic in the pits on the grandstand. Toto Wolf speaking to TC. Always fascinating. A lot of the time with Toto, you get sound bites in the TV coverage. I liked hearing him speak at length there. Such a fascinating guy with an interesting backstory. And what I thought was so interesting about that is the little Toto Wolf manifesto that we got. The things that he would tick off when you mentioned, well, what does this, what does this new CEO have to do for Formula One? And he mentioned more sponsorship, new races, win the next generation without even thinking about it. If it's not a job he's got today, it's maybe possibly one that he's got his eye on in the future. I'm sure you're right there. And I'm sure he's thought about the job in the past as well, which is probably why those ideas were just so at the forefront of his mind. But a lot of people might have expected him to be a little bitter. That sounds a bit strong, but, you know, because for many people, he would have been a very good president and CEO of Formula One. So I thought he came across as very genuine in his approval of mm. Stefano Domenicali. And I think he will give him his complete support. And I mean, it's so unusual, isn't it? When you've had a guy who's worked in Formula One for more than 20 years, and yet when he, he leaves, goes and runs Lamborghini for a bit, comes back, and there is universal praise. I actually walked up and down the paddock here in Sochi trying to find someone who had a negative thing to say about <laughs> Stefano Carly, and I couldn't because he is universally liked. He's a lovely guy. I've been around in Formula One long enough to, to remember him before he was team principal at, at, at Ferrari. And we even used to run the tracks together, would you believe it? But what really struck me isn't his prowess as an athlete, AJ. It was his capacity whilst we were running to talk, number one, but also what he said, uh, I found completely fascinating because he was the team manager at Ferrari at the time when we, we started running together. And yet he was already thinking bigger picture. It wasn't all about Ferrari, Ferrari, Ferrari. It was, we'd just gone to Sepang. 1999 was the first year that Formula went to Sepang. And he was asking questions like, isn't it fantastic that Formula One's come to this part of the world? And I wonder, what country do you think we should go to next? He was asking those sorts of questions, not talking about the new front wing that they'd introduced on the F399 or whatever it was back in 99. Not talking uh, about the barge boards being illegal. Oh, was that year? That's a really good memory, AJ. Yeah, but this was before they were actually illegal or before they'd been protested. I think we were having this conversation. But it's interesting that a guy as team manager was already, I thought, thinking completely bigger picture stuff. He was wanting to know about the world of the media. and Yeah, and so it's not a surprise. I think that is required for anyone in a position of CEO at a company that is worth as much as Lamborghini. Take the cultural baton at Ferrari gives him a little bit of insight of what will now be required at Formula One because he comes to Formula One, which means an awful lot. And it is this amalgamation of so many different parts of a business. It is basically unlike any other CEO position in any other sport because of the complex way that Formula One is made up. Now, Toto Wolf also said, in his chat with you. He said, I know Ferrari did not want me as Formula One CEO. Why would Ferrari not want a successful business person running the sport? That's my question. I don't think anyone is doubting that Toto Wolff is capable of running Formula One. 
Um, I, I'm guessing, I don't know that Ferrari think he's got too many vested interests. Of course, he's a 30% shareholder of Mercedes. He's got a shareholdering in Aston Martin. He's got shares and goodness knows what else in, in various drivers up and down the pit lane and in the junior formulas. And maybe there's just too much going on. That was their issue. But I think one thing you couldn't doubt is Toto's integrity if that was their issue. I don't think if he'd got the job, I don't think in any way made any decisions against Ferrari. I think he totally understands and appreciates their role in the sport of Formula One. But anyway, that's all immaterial now because you've got uh, Jean Todd, Stefano Domenicali and Ross Braun running the sport and they were all at Ferrari. There you go. <laughs> Just about time for, I want to get your opinion on this. So I've been to Sochi plenty of times. To me, it is the most quirky and unique race of the entire season because it doesn't really feel like a real place. You have a roller coaster on one side of the track, an enormous railway station at the other. There's a motorway on the other side. And at the end of the plot is the Black Sea. That is just not normal. You're absolutely right. But I feel it's like Baku, the Az- right. home of the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. It feels very similar to that. When you get here, it's a very easy race to work. The hotels are all very near. Uh, the paddock's nice and small. It's not like in China where you have to, you're doing about 40,000 steps a day just to get to the you know far end and back. No, this is an easy race to work. Uh, I think it's interesting that a lot of team personnel who don't come to every race, don't have to come to every race invariably come here because I think, as I said, I think it's an easy race to work. I think when you're at somewhere like Spa and the teams are all littered at, across a vast area, the logistics of that are much harder. And then, of course, with all the um, COVID bubbles, the teams are all uh, flying out on, on chartered planes that take them back closer to their factories than, than Heathrow if you're in the UK, for example. So yeah, it's an easy race to work. I love coming here. The only downside of it is getting the visa. But once you've got that, you're done. There you go. Everyone loves Sochi and don't believe anything different that you read or hear. This has been F1 Nation. (laughs) Remember to review the podcast if you can. Subscribe as well. That would be very useful to us. And send us a review or a comment on social media. We will check all of them for a special mailbag. I will remember. I'm going to write it down to remember to do the mailbag next week when we don't have a giant motorsport event to talk about. And there's no Grand Prix. We're going to have to have that ideas meeting first thing tomorrow, TC. Yeah, and don't forget the mailbag, AJ. Send in your questions. We look forward to reading them. That is F1 Nation this week. We will speak to you next. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. 